the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is. Welcome back. Thursday, June 24th, 2021. I was listening to some old Paul Harvey speeches and realized what a tragedy so few of the things he said back when he was the king of radio. So many of the things he said went unheeded and are now forgotten. But I suppose there is a reason he was the king of radio in his time. His common sense was a great solve for the common man who was watching an elite absorb more and more of the terrain of our culture and politics. People who read the Washington Post think they own the country, Paul Harvey once put it. He would go on to say people who read the New York Times know that they run the country. People who read the Washington Times think the Washington Post runs the country. And people who read the Wall Street Journal think they own the country. While people who read the USA Today couldn't care less who runs the country as long as the weather map is in color. Interesting point about Washington Post and New York Times, though, and interesting point, too, about conservatives who believe the Washington Post runs the country. But from issues ranging from the law and history to education and safety, Paul Harvey spoke to a common wisdom that was then leaving the mainstream and is now fully unrecognized by it. I love this from a speech he gave about 20 years ago. He said, isn't there something absurdly incongruous about a society which regulates so rigidly what we put into our mouths and into our nose and so timidly what goes into our eyes and into our ears? I might add a codicil. Isn't it interesting and incongruous that a society which regulates so rigidly what we put into our lungs and liver seems to care very so little about what goes into our brains. Harvey believed and said if there's one irrefutable lesson to be learned from history, it is that excesses ultimately, inevitably, eventually are their own undoing. He says we will behave or we will be forced to behave. And that is, of course, what we saw in COVID and is being seen in issues ranging from speech to the environment, in certainly one sense of what he meant, forced to behave, there is a tendency, an authoritarian personality, that will force us into certain behavior. But in another sense, we can be forced to behave in the meaning of increasing suffering or punishment or negative public policy outcomes. That is to say, when you do enough damage... You have nothing left but to fix it. But I worry about the old nostalgia pour la buie, the desire for the nostalgia for the mud. Some people like living in recreations of Woodstock, autonomous zones, where the return to some kind of pre-civilized state of nature is the highest form of advancement in civilization. You've heard me quote Tom Wolfe before on this from his essay on the Great Relearning. As I read this, keep in mind everything he says can certainly still be true culturally, but also politically. Recrudescence can happen here. 
liberty is not guaranteed, and neither is civilization. Tom, we'll put it this way. In 1968 in San Francisco, I came across a curious footnote to the psychedelic movement. At the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic, there were doctors who were treating diseases no living doctor had ever encountered before. Diseases that had disappeared so long ago they never even picked up Latin names. Diseases such as the mange, the grunge, the itch, the twitch, the thrush, the scroff, the rot. And how was it that they had now returned? It had to do with the fact that thousands of young men and women had migrated to San Francisco to live communally in what I think history will record as one of the most extraordinary religious experiments of all time. The hippies, as they had become known, sought nothing less than to sweep aside all codes and restraints of the past and start out from zero. At one point, Ken Kesey organized a pilgrimage to Stonehenge with the idea of returning to Anglo-Saxon civilization point zero, which he thought was Stonehenge and heading out all over again to do it yet better. Among the codes and restraints that people in the communes swept aside quite purposely were those that said you shouldn't use other people's toothbrushes or sleep on other people's mattresses without changing the sheets or, as was more likely, without using any sheets at all, or that you and five other people shouldn't drink from the same bottle of Shasta or take tokes from the same cigarette. And now in 1968, they were relearning the laws of hygiene by getting the mange and the grunge and the itch and the twitch and the thrush and the scroff and the rot. In a sense, there's Paul Harvey's meaning of we will behave or we will be forced to behave. But still with my caveat, for those that want civilization, it's true and not mud. But discount the latter group as insignificant at your peril. To wit, you have an awful lot of lawmakers and would-be political leaders and activists who have been taken in by this country, having come from God-forsaken laboratories of misery. Think of a certain congresswoman from Minnesota as one example, and they have witnessed in this country a wonder like no other, a life people sacrifice their own for to try and achieve and gain. You have an awful lot of people who can see the wonders where a nobody in living conditions from the poorest of the poor can grow up here to be a billionaire or president, regardless of the country of origin or race. They can see this and then want to do what? Ape, mimic, and absorb the political practices and philosophy of places like China or the USSR of yore. They can look at the marvel and engine of New York City, built by ingenuity, hard work, and certain ethnic and religious values, and trash it all in an effort in the mayoral office and congressional delegation to turn it into a laboratory of another kind, one of high crime, wedded to socialist economics. Back to Tom Wolfe, quote, In politics, the 20th century's great start from zero was one party, Socialism, also known as communism or Marxism-Leninism. Given that system's bad reputation in the West t- today, it is instructive to read John Reed's Ten Days That Shook the World before turning to Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago. 
The old strike hall poster of a Promethean worker in a blue shirt breaking his chains across his mighty chest was, in truth, the vision of ultimate human freedom the movement believed in at the outset. For intellectuals in the West, the painful dawn began with the publication of the Gulag Archipelago in 1973. And for those who don't remember John Reed or his book, it was the pro-Lenin book covering the October Revolution in 1919. Solzhenitsyn insisted that the villain behind the Soviet concentration camp network was not really Stalin or Lenin, who invented the term concentration camp, or even Marxism. It was instead the Soviets' particularly 20th century notion that they could sweep aside not only the old social order, but also its religious ethic, which had been millennia in the making, common decency as Orwell called it, and they, they could reinvent morality here, now, at the point of a gun, in the famous words of Mao Zedong. Even get the, ever, ever get the sense free market capitalism and religious ethics are right now at their greatest discount or nadir, never mind common decency? I wonder if modern philosophers think economics and religion are societal extras, lanyap, if you will, not necessary rather than something required of a society as much as man that if disrupted or destroyed will be filled by its opposite, in which case we would be looking at Marxism and socialism and moral apathy and acedia. My point is, do economics and religious values matter? If they don't, do away with them. If they do, be careful of what you replace one with the other Four. It dawns on me. This return to zero does, as I say, pertain to politics, too, not just health. How long did it take to learn what freedom could produce as opposed to what the USSR could produce? And why has China been able to continue to produce in a way that, though through theft, though through bribery, though through forced labor, labor and slavery, how has it been able to continue in a way that a great many Americans admire? Is it that it's better or is it that it just isn't America or is it that it's poised against America? Think on that latter point for a moment, because those who want us to talk the most about the legacy of slavery here seem to have no problem covering up actual kinetic real time modern day current slavery there. They're happy to profit off that. How does that happen? How can that happen? Ibram Kendi says one cannot be a capitalist and an anti-racist at the same time. Thus, capitalists like Jack Dorsey give him tens of millions of dollars. You see, there's a subtle message here. Capitalism equals America and anti-racism does not equal America. And therein is the lie. Capitalism is not uniquely American. Heck, one can find medieval Islamic scholars talking and writing of capitalism's benefits. But anti-racism surely is uniquely American. Find me the country that fought a civil war ending the lives of three quarters of a million people, countrymen. A civil war exclusively over the issue of whether a human being was a human being, irrespective of his weight of his race. 
And this is the secret the left cannot stand. Thus, they reinvent and reinstantiate it by calling us systematically racist. And sometimes they even invent hoaxes of it and making it so evident of a conspiracy that it isn't even seeable or evident, don't you know? It's implicit, systemic and implicit. I sometimes wonder if someone went to Martin Luther King in 1963 and said, oh, you're going to march because of the systemic and implicit problems that black men face in too much of America? King would, I'm sure, look confused. There was nothing implicit about what he was fighting, and there was nothing he thought the system could not be appealed to in order to redress it, which is why he kept preaching about the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and kept using America's legislative and legal processes. But there is a desire, Dennis Prager spoke of it this morning, among too many to take the good and trash it, to take the beautiful and vulgarize it. But they are not progressive in thought or advanced and enlightened in their thinking. Not really, not in the real meaning of those terms. They are rather taking us back to zero as if we've learned nothing. When we indeed have learned a lot. Beware those who are trying to make us dumb again. I am Seth Leibson. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602-508-0960 is uh, the number. Got a lot to do today. Bill, did we have an unresolved thing we were talking about? What were we talking about earlier, off air, before the show started? There was no, yeah, maybe, Earth, Wind, and Fire, and September, whether that is a rock song. They're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We have discovered that being a member or inductee into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame does not ipso facto make you a rock musician. We have examples that raise that question. So Maurice White and the boys being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I think they're more disco, jazz, soul, and funk It just should be called the Music Hall of Fame. What would Adam Carolla say? I don't even know why they call it the rockin'. You don't just take good popular music, popular, and just slap a name rock on it. That doesn't just make it rock and roll. It has to have... Anyway, uh, speaking of music, are you familiar with the band? You certainly are. Mumford and Sons. You know this controversy over Winston Marshall, uh, one of the musicians in the band. Do you know the band? Very popular band. So Winston Marshall did the unthinkable. He's a member of the band, or was. Uh, he did the unthinkable in uh, March. You know what he did? He tweet. You know who Andy No is? Spelled N-G-O. Andy No. He's the uh, journalist. Uh, he wrote the book Unmasked, and yes, he tracks Antifa and does. Uh, does the journalism that most journalists should be embarrassed they're not doing when it comes to understanding Antifa. Anyway, that's Andy No. He does it, by the way, at great personal risk. They know who he is, and he ends up in EDs quite a lot. Somewhere along the line, ED replaced ER, and I don't love it, but I sound like an evidently idiot if I say ER. I'm supposed to say ED, emergency department. Who knew? Anyway, Andy No ends up in him. 
at the beginning of March, all he did was read Auntie No's book and tweet out, congratulations, finally had to ta- the time to read your important book, You're a Brave Man, close quote. Well, whew. Posting about books had been a theme of my social media throughout the pandemic, Winston Marshall writes. I believed this tweet to be as innocuous as the others. How wrong I turned out to be. Again, here's his tweet. Congratulations, Mr. Andy No. Finally had the time to read your important book. You're a brave man. Over the course of 24 hours, Marshall writes, it was trending with tens of thousands of angry retweets and comments, no doubt by people who have not read Andy No's book. By the way, I failed to foresee, he writes, that my commenting on a book critical of the far left could be interpreted as approval of the equally abhorrent far right. Nothing could be further from the truth. To call me a fascist was ludicrous beyond belief. Thirteen members of my family were killed in the Holocaust. My grandmother, unlike her cousin, aunts and uncles, survived. We know fascism Pretty well. I've had plenty of abuse over the years. I'm a banjo player after all. But this was another level. And owing to our association, my friends, my bandmates, they were getting it too. It took me more than a moment to understand how distressing this was for them. Despite being four individuals, we were in the eyes of the public a unity. Furthermore, it's our singer's name on the tin. That name was being dragged through some pretty ugly accusations as a result of my tweet. The distress brought to them and their families that weekend, I regret very much. I remain sincerely sorry for that. Unintentionally, I had pulled them into a divisive issue. Emotions were high. Despite pressure to nix me, they invited me to continue with the band, and that took courage, particularly in an age of cancel culture. I made an apology and agreed to take a temporary step back. Rather predictably, another viral mob came after me, this time for the sin of apologizing, (laughs) and then... Followed libelous articles calling me right wing. So why did I apologize? Rub your eyes and purify your heart and prize above all else in the world those who love you and wish you well, Alexander Solzhenitsyn once wrote. In the mania of the moment, I was desperate to protect my bandmates. The hornet's nest that I had unwittingly hit had unleashed a black-hearted swarm on them and their families, and I didn't want them to suffer. They were my priority. Secondly, I was sincerely open to the fact that maybe I didn't know something about the author and his work. Courage is what it takes to stand up and speak, Churchill once said, and courage is also what it takes to sit down and listen. And so I listened. Why did I leave the band? Why did I leave the band? On the eve of his leaving to the West, Solzhenitsyn published an essay titled Live Not By Lies. And he who is not sufficiently courageous to defend his soul, don't let him be proud of his progressive views and don't let him boast that he is an academician or people's artist, a distinguished figure or a general. Let him say to himself, I am a part of the herd and a coward. It's all the same to me as long as I'm fed and kept warm. For me to speak about what I've learned to be such a controversial issue will inevitably bring my bandmates more trouble. And that I cannot do. The only way forward is for me to leave the band. This is tragic. This is sad. And I hate the apologies. People should not have to apologize for sincerely held rational beliefs, not just sincere beliefs.
I was just thinking a little bit more about. Uh, I was just thinking a little bit more about uh, the Mumford and Sons, uh, Marshall, who's who who left the band because he said that Andy No's book was courageous, and he got too much pushback from fans in the music industry. If you can't say that a book about an anti-American, cop-killing, building-destroying, violent anarchist gang takes bravery to write, if you can't say that without fear of retribution and the need to cancel yourself, then this country has a really big problem. And it has a really big problem not with tolerance but with something far stronger, something you might call right and wrong, right and wrong. It shouldn't take an act of heroism or a news story to say a reporter is a journalist. And by the way, what of musicians who used to be on the front lines of stating the unpopular – Musicians and entertainers who would join protest movements. Musicians and entertainers who would march in front of the White House or Congress or sing not only protest songs but lend their name and voice to activist causes, usually on the left. Are there conservative activists? That's a good actors and entertainers. Maybe maybe five. Maybe five. Charlton Heston, we remember, used to speak for the NRA. Tom Selleck did. Do we have any? Is there any other identifiable actor who's willing to stand up for a conservative cause? Kevin Sorbo. Maybe Will Kane. Maybe one or two others, but you don't see more than five or six. You don't see more than five or six. So it turns out it's not courageous so much for Andy No to write his book and cover Antifa. Of course it is. But we can't seem to find the courage of a musician or anyone in the entertainment industry who's willing to say what he did was courageous. He doesn't care, I'm sure. He doesn't want it. He doesn't need it. But what a shame. What a shame an industry that used to pride itself on standing up to the man is now caving to him. And caving to, you know, it's not as if this is Bruce Springsteen endorsing Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden or Barack Obama. It's not as if this is, you know, uh, Cher standing up or Paul Simon standing up for Hillary Clinton. This is we're talking about Antifa. Antifa. If you want to know why cops have to pull out riot gear when Antifa comes to town or engages in a march, um, that's all you need to know. Antifa comes, the riot gear comes. Has to. It has to. Because death comes otherwise. And you shouldn't have to be sent to Coventry for saying it's courageous to cover that. I just think it's a shame. I just think it's a shame. Bill Maher told uh, told one of his guests, who was it the other day, to stop apologizing. It might have been 
over the Lin-Manuel Miranda issue. It might have been around that and Rita Moreno. Stop the apologies. They haven't earned it. It won't mean anything anyway. You think it means anything when a, when, when a, when a conservative apologizes? For reason? No, the answer is no. And the answer is no because you don't need to apologize. It's an empty apology ab initio because the left knows you don't need to apologize. They just know they're trying to shut you up and cancel you. It is like what Tina said to me about Goldfinger yesterday. Do you want us to talk? Do you want me to talk? No, I want you to die. Do you want me to apologize? No. We want you gone. We want you gone. It's not shut up and sing anymore. It's just shut up. It's just shut up. You can't even do your non-political work in the world of today's left. Maybe George Clooney, who gave that great speech at the Academy Awards about how heroic it was for Hollywood to stand up against Joe McCarthy. Maybe he could do a movie about today's McCarthyism. By the way, it's far, far more widespread and far, far worse. 602-5080-960. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, portions of which are brought to you by my friend Solar Sandy. If you're thinking of going solar and saying goodbye to those traditional utility bills that go higher and higher and higher, Solar Sandy is your answer. She has actually figured out how to truly zero out your power bill if you go solar with her. And it is so important that if you do go solar, you go solar with Solar Sandy and doing it, doing it the right way. Right now if you sign up, she'll pay your panel bills for your power bills for 1 year as well as your solar panel payments. She'll do appointments in person or via Zoom. I just saw her and a bunch of her customers, gosh, they were happy and they were happy to be getting rebate checks from the power companies. Read the testimonials on her website asksolarsandy.com. They're amazing. To get started, go to AskSolarSandy.com and let her do all the work or give her a call at 623-850-8229. You'll like this gal. Trust me. AskSolarSandy.com. Mike is in Carefree. Hi, Mike. Hi, Seth. Um, There was such a a flagrant example of intolerant leftism coming from the top today when President Biden was speaking about the Second Amendment, and he rather arrogantly... um, well, tried to recite the, the, the soliloquy about the tree of liberty must be... I heard that. Oh, my gosh, I did hear that. Yeah, I think it was yesterday, but I heard it. I heard him fumble and that. He, he you did know. it again today, and it was... Oh, did he do it again today? Did he do it again? Yes. Why does he keep he, doing that? And then he proceeded to say, well, if you want to take on the government, you better have some... F-16s and, yeah, that uh, I, I saw that. Yeah. and cruise missiles. It's like, well, if there was ever a proof in the pudding of Je- Thomas Jefferson, the greatest risk to democracy is a standing army. One of the things that I mean, uh, one well, I, I mean, one of the things I'm and by the way, we're going to have a guest on at the top of the hour to talk about Joe Biden and the Second Amendment. But um, one of the things that is amazing to me, Mike, is that he even went into that. I, I mean, what a weird thing to say. If you want to take on the well, government, what was it you're going to need an atomic bomb? I mean, you said you said you need an F-15 and 
and cruise missiles. Yeah. And it's like, right. it's the first time in my entire 68 years of life that I've ever heard an American president threaten the people. I, it was the oddest thing in the world. It really is. And you combine that with, not to make too big of a thing of it in its own, but when you put these things together, that whispering thing he was doing today from the White House podium, just 30 seconds of whispering into the microphone, just really odd. Just really, really odd, Mike. Um, it's hard to deny dementia. When it, it's, uh, it's not as if they're helping us, are they? It's no. not as if they're helping us. They... Um, Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, said last week in an unguarded moment to one of the uh, one of the reporters, we try and we try and keep him away from the press. And then, of course, there was the week before Nancy Pelosi saying, no, don't let him speak in a Zoom call with congressional leaders, him being the president. I've never heard of a member of Congress speaking about the president that way, I suppose. But, Mike, there's something that's very much akin to a big, bad, dirty joke that everyone is in on except the president. It's really weird. I mean, you sense that Democrats know this, too, don't you? I do. I mean, you can't. I'm a doctor. You can't listen to him and not know that he is demented. And he's parroting remarks said to him. He goes off when he goes off script. He's a complete babbling idiot and can't finish a sentence. He, he truly can't. And. Anyway, I, yeah, I, I'm always nervous about these these distant uh, diagnoses, but something is very much not right in the state. Something is very much rotten in the state of Denmark here, and it seems they like we all kind of know him, it. They should at least make him take a cognitive. Well, patient. you know, I, I, I don't know what the um, I don't I don't know what the should is here, but what I do find interesting is if you remember, Mike. There were, from day one of the Trump White House, all these reports and leaks about members of the cabinet who wanted to think about the 25th Amendment. And at the end of the Trump presidency, there was all this talk about removing nuclear code uh, authority from the president of the United States. You know, the story here is much, much bigger. That was truly about ideology. This is a much bigger issue. Trump took the test. <laughs> did he? Probably I didn't know that. Did he? I didn't yes, know he that. Did. He did. He took the cognition test and scored scored flying colors. Is that right? And 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 he said, "Okay, if you think I'm demented, I'll take the test." <laughs> I didn't know that. But the media was all over it, and they certainly weren't satisfied by it. And they certainly, by the way, were also on this case in 1984 with Ronald Reagan. It's if you're a Republican president, this is fair game. You know, there's this thing that people say these days that it's not really the most comfortable thing to talk about. There was no reticence or hesitancy with Trump and Reagan about talking about this and making and writing stories about this. There was no hesitancy whatsoever. It was fully, it was completely decorous to raise this when Reagan and Trump were in office. I mean, you could say Trump was intemperate. Sure. And injudicious in his speech and stuff. Sure. But he clearly, cognitively, is one of the brightest presidents we've had in a long time. You might not like his wisdom, his speech, or his name calling, but the guy, the guy had all his marbles. Well, I had no doubt at any point that he was in command of his faculties, and I had no doubt about that with regard to any other president in my lifetime. To be honest with you, I've just never had that feeling until now.
until now. I did not, you know, uh, we had our problems with Barack Obama, to be sure, Bill Clinton. We never thought that they weren't in control of themselves, of their faculties. Well, Bill Clinton in a different way. But we never thought that about, <laughs> right? He wasn't exactly, you don't exactly say Bill Clinton was in control of himself. <laughs> but it's at, at least his mental faculties, um, it seems. And, uh, and, and, and so we've never had this before. But that's on the media. That's on the media. I mean, I look. If I, I, I don't, I don't know if I'm the chief of staff. If I want a publicly, uh, uh, you know, administered or, or publicly discussed cognition test, especially since I probably know what it will result, what the result will be. But the media really has let us down on this. This is this well, the is problem. Yeah, go ahead. The problem you have is. He's really, I'm sure, run by the cabinet, and if in in his second stead is uh, Kamala Harris, and after that is Nancy Pelosi. So I almost, I almost got to tell you, I see a different thing running the country. I don't think these cabinet members are running the country, and I'll tell you why, Mike. It's actually an interesting point I was just thinking about today. The reason I don't think they're running the country is because whenever they're interviewed. Or whenever they're um, asked questions after a speech, these cabinet members, I just saw the Secretary of Education earlier today. You see it from Mayorkas, you see it from others. They don't really have good answers. It seems like they're kind of hedging because they don't know. Like, for instance, uh, the Secretary of Education today was asked about student loans. That was a big damn deal. You'd think he'd know something about it. He says we haven't discussed it. They're unsure of where the administration is because I think... It is not run by the cabinet members, and I don't think it's run by Kamala either. I think it's Ron Klain, the chief of staff. I think it's Susan Rice, domestic policy advisor, and I think it's Jill Biden. And if you think of the three of them all put together, you can't think of a single media appearance by any of them. And that's a tell, too, in a weird, inverted way, isn't it? Got to hit the break. Be right back. You want a fun game? Uh, where did I hear this? Might have been on Corolla's show. Where did I hear this? I heard that you should look at the top 10 songs of your high school graduating year to understand the theme of your life. You ever heard that before? You think that's a Corolla thing? I heard, I heard Corolla do that. Yeah. Oh, well, would you please kindly look up the 10 songs of your graduating high school year? From, can you do that for me? And I, will un- and I will figure out the course of your life. What year? You don't want to say. You don't have to. You, you know what to do. <laughs> I know mine, by the way. I know mine. We are, I'll, so I'll tell you mine. Huh? We do 87? Yeah, I did 87, but we, which is mine, but we need to do yours, and you don't have to tell us the year. But just give us the 10 songs, okay, Bill? You don't have to do it in this segment. That's a quick order. Listener Charles, you know, I don't ever read last names unless someone specifically tells me to. I just don't. Um, when I get emails from listeners, I presume you would prefer I don't. Uh, always presumed that. But he has one of the coolest last names. I've always, I'm always tempted more than any, uh, anyone else. It's just such a cool na- last name. I'm always tempted to say it, but I won't unless I hear otherwise. Charles was hearing me on conservatives in Hollywood, and I had made the point that there's really only a couple, handful of, at most, of Hollywood actors that have stood up on behalf of conservative causes, even as spokesman form, and I thought of Charlton Heston and Tom Selleck with the NRA, uh, but Charles wrote me back uh, with a bunch of other entertainers 
who at least have been willing to stand up for Republican candidates from time to time. And that's fair enough. James Woods, Dean Kane. Yeah, I said Will Kane. I, I meant Dean Kane. Nicely put. James Woods, Dean Kane, John Voigt. Boy, we should re-air that interview I did with John Voigt last year. That was a lot of fun. Tim Allen, Kid Rock, Kelsey Grammer, Stacy Dash, Kirsty Alley, and we did did we do Ted Nugent? No, and Ted Nugent. Um yeah, so it's 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 a small list. <laughs> it's a small list. But um but I but I love them all. Oh, one of the Baldwin brothers too, I believe. Stephen the religious one. Is it Stephen Baldwin the Do you have your 10 songs? You do? Not yet. You will have them. You don't want to do it. Thinking of who else we have actor wise. Oh no. Gary think... Sinise, did you say Gary Sinise? You know, Gary's an interesting one and Bruce Willis is an interesting one. Once upon a time, I he's quieted down a lot. But back, I think, in the 90s, he went to a Republican convention, maybe, maybe 88, 92, something like that. And you never heard much. What was the other one you said? You mentioned one other. I forget who. Yeah, it's our <laughs> He's probably happy. <laughs> Gary Sinise. He does great work for the military. And somehow I get the sense he's conservative. I think he does a lot of Republican events. I think that's right. Boy, awfully shy of country musicians. What happened to them? What happened to them? I'm Seth Leibson. I'll be right back.